0: Have you ever been in a church service that was interrupted because of what someone was doing? Have you ever been in a service that was interrupted, like the service stopped because of what somebody was doing? I remember back in high school, it was a Sunday evening service, and the senior pastor was praying, and he stopped in the middle of his prayer. And it's one of those moments, one of those feelings where you feel like eyes are looking right at you, But you don't dare look up because your eyes are closed and praying the way you're supposed to be doing. But you sense that maybe you're part of the reason why he stopped in the middle of his prayer. That was me. You got to understand, Pastor Mac, Pastor William McElhinney, we all called him Pastor Mac. World War II veteran, a D-Day survivor kind of guy. Just utmost respect we had for this man. And the way he would say amen at the end of his prayers just made you go, wow. So be it, you know? And I remember just thinking, like, this guy is just, he just fears God and and just oozes out of him. And so when he stops in the middle of his prayer, there's this reverent man of God stopping, and it makes you stop as well. And the reason why he stopped was I could hear what was going on. See, the, the, the church had a main auditorium and then there was an overflow room and the cool kids like me, or at least the striving to be such, uh, sat over there on the Sunday evening service. And they had the chairs just kind of like this and we were sitting there and as he's praying his pastoral prayer, right in the middle is kind of where he's about to get into it, he stops. And you see how awkward that is when all of a sudden it becomes silent? <laughs> You're like, wait, that's not supposed to happen. And he continues on in his prayer. The reason why he stopped is because in the room behind us was this little room, and there was a couple gentlemen. One was the treasurer, and one was another accountability partner for counting the offering. And as he's praying, you hear this. (laughs) Kind of thing going on, right? And it just keeps going. And I remember thinking, my buddies are with me. And I remember thinking, I am like this, and my head is bowed, my eyes are closed. I am not talking, no one's talking to me. And why does it seem like someone's talking? And then he continues on his prayer. Right after that prayer, the amen comes through. About a minute later, guess who walks in? All the parents. That look of, oh, you were so busted. Just wait till church is over. And I'm wanted to speak out and scream out, it wasn't me, it wasn't me. But of course you're supposed to be quiet and not say anything in church because the pastor's gonna get started. I'll never forget that day, that moment, that evening of that church. It remains an unforgettable day in church for me. Just just with what happened. And as we continue our series in knowing the truth about Jesus in the gospel of Luke, we were in the hometown of Nazareth last week, uh, where Jesus grew up. And Luke told us the people in Jesus' home church drove him out of that church with the intent to kill him. And and that certainly had to be an unforgettable day in the life of that church, in, in my mind, I think so much so that Jesus didn't forget it and he never returned to the city of Nazareth, to the synagogue there. And after that day, Luke goes on to tell us that Jesus went from Nazareth to the Sea of Galilee, to the fishing hub of all of Israel. And and what happened since last week, while we were in Luke chapter 4, 14 to 30, what's happened since then in the progression of a week or month or so to this point is Jesus has gone into the Sea of Galilee and he has gone out and he's gone up to some men that are fishermen and he says, come with me and I will make you fishers of men. A couple of those guys was Simon, we know him as Peter and his brother Andrew and then two other set of brothers, James and John and so Jesus has come to recruit them and bring them in to these discipleship, his team that he's assembling together. And last week, we learned that Jesus went to church week in and week out. Remember that phrase? As was his what? As was his custom. Well, Jesus continues this custom, if you will. But in a new town and in a new church or a new synagogue, as it were. And like it is for me, that one day at church many years ago, this day in this church, is going to be unforgettable. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, open it up, pull out the flat screen, whatever it is, and open it to Luke 4, and let's discover why this was an unforgettable day in church. Luke chapter 4. We're going to be at the church in Capernaum. Let's just read these first two verses to to get this set up for us. Luke writes this, and he, that's Jesus, came down to Capernaum, a city in the Sea of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Father, we thank you that your word is authoritative. And God, I pray right now that as we look into the verses that are before us and this message that I want to present to your children. God, I pray that you would allow us just to set aside whatever concerns, worries, whatever we've got, and, and just let those rest right now. And Lord, allow us to be sensitive to what you want to say to us, that you want to teach us. And God, as we look into the subject matter of today of spiritual warfare, I pray by the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, that Satan would be bound from this church. Not only now, but forever, God. And I allow us to let you speak to us as we go into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in Capernaum. This is the new city that Jesus is going to. It's on the Sea of Galilee. And, And what's interesting is if you look at this, it says, and he came down to Capernaum. And because of me having the gift or curse of being a detailed guy, depending upon how you look at it, I had to stop and go, wait a minute, is this correct, is this right the way it should be? It doesn't seem like it should be, that he comes down to this place. But I put together a map up here that I want you to look at, and you'll notice, uh, if this works for me, you'll notice here that here's Nazareth. And if you think of this, it's going to be north, this is going to be south and west, east, Right? But it says what? He came down. So if you're in my thinking, don't you mean south? Right? And yet it says he came down. So is this an error in scripture? What's going on? Why does it say that? Again, maybe it's the curse of being a detail guy that I am. But here's what's going on. This is not about geography. This is about topography. What you have in Nazareth is an elevation of about 1,200 feet above sea level. And when he goes to Capernaum there... It's about 700 feet below sea level. So when it says he goes down, it's like a 2,000-foot difference in elevation. That's all that he's saying here, and I just wanted to bring that detail to your mind. In case you're wondering, wait a minute. If I was to look at a map, down means, oh, it's, oh, it's, okay, okay, I'm, I'm with you. Can we keep going? Yes, we can. So here he is. There's, Capernaum is one of about 30 cities in the Sea of Galilee. It's probably one of the bigger ones, and, and certainly the hub for the fishing industry there on the Sea of Galilee. And since Jesus was rejected in Nazareth, Capernaum becomes his new home. In fact, so much so that it becomes really his new ministry headquarters for the next three years that he's going to do ministry. As we look back again to verse 31, it says, He was teaching them on the Sabbath. And what I did is I put together a slide that just kind of gives you a perspective of a synagogue from, from that time. Uh, there you go. This is just a, basically based on an excavation that they did of a synagogue in the area of Galilee. And remember last week we mentioned that that there were scrolls? Well, right here are the scrolls. And so an attendant would walk over here, grab a scroll, bring it to here, and they'd do their, their reading and their worship service from, from that point on. So when you think of a synagogue, just kind of picture something like this. This is a bigger one. This is not probably as big or as extravagant as the one in Nazareth. But this is Capernaum because it's a bigger city. Potentially, there's a little bit more money in that area because of the fishing industry and whatnot. So they have a little bit more, perhaps. And this excavation of this shows this. And so here he is, as was his custom. Like it said in verse 16, here he goes into the synagogue teaching again. And this never stops until the cross. And if you think about that, for three years of ministry, he's continually, wherever he is, he's going to the synagogue week in and week out until he goes to the cross. And then it says in verse 32 32, that his message was given with authority. Why is that distinct right there? It says it was authority. Well, what you need to understand is when someone got up to speak and would teach in a synagogue, their authority typically came from two sources. One source would be Jewish tradition. So somebody might make a statement. A teacher might say, well, it's this, or interpret scripture this way, or have something that they present, and they'd say, on the authority of Jewish tradition. Well, the second resource or kind of point that they would go back to as far as authority would be, well, I say this or present that based on what other rabbis more seasoned rabbis, older rabbis, a little longer beard, a little grayer beard, have said. And so they would say, on those authorities, I give you this. Well, when Jesus gets up to speak, the, the, the understanding here is he's not having to go to tradition or to another rabbi to have a platform to give authority. It's on his alone, because who is he? He's God, That's why this congregation, these people were going, man, he speaks on his own authority. He doesn't refer to what we're so used to. This is different. And the writer here, Luke, just wants to bring that to our attention of who is speaking here, who is teaching here. It is God. And he comes and he teaches and he speaks and he instructs with authority. And the audience notes this and Luke records it for us. And so from verse 31 and 32, as we begin this message, Let me ask you this. Do you see anything that's, quote, unforgettable in the day of the life of this church so far? Any interruptions? Any surprises? Anything out of the ordinary? I think I heard one person had the faith to say no, so praise God for that. Well, this is about to change in an unforgettable way. In the next five verses, Luke records an unforgettable day In church, look at your Bible there in verse 33 of Luke chapter 4. In the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. And amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, What is this message? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. I call this an unforgettable moment in the day in life of that church. This is something that's like, do you remember that day that that demon came out and interrupted the service and Jesus was there? I mean, that would be something I don't think I'm gonna forget. Are you following me? Like, That's gonna stand out in your mind. This is gonna stand out in the history of your church. This this is gonna be going on and you're thinking, man, this 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 is happening. Next week is Vision Sunday and one of the things I was requested to do is to produce or write up a highlight, a, a, a report, my annual report. Friends, if this had happened in my church, I would have said, uh, and my highlight of my annual report is this day in church, right? It, it stands out. It's unforgettable. So what I want to do for just for a moment is pull the car over. And connect the dots of what's happening here. Because I want you to see, kind of like pull the lens back. See a bigger picture of what's happening here. And kind of the dot-to-dot picture that you might put together. Here's what I want you to connect in what's happening here in the life of Jesus. If you remember, and Pastor Mike taught on this a few weeks ago, he was baptized by John the Baptist. What that signified was this is the start of his earthly ministry. And when we see the next event happening is that Jesus goes away up to a mountain, and we know that is the Mount of Temptation. He's there for 40 days, 40 nights, and he faces incredible temptation. I think there was more than just the three that are recorded there in, in Scripture that we looked at earlier, but it's amazing the amount of temptation. The, the, the devil comes right at Jesus, and then what we see is Jesus goes to Nazareth, and what do we see there? The church tries to kill him, at this point, so we've got temptation going on. We've got a threat to his life. And now here we are showing up in the church of Capernaum, and a demon shows up to confront Jesus. This is the big picture of what's happening since Jesus got baptized. The battle is on. Satan has stepped up the attacks through the temptation, through the church in Nazareth. Go figure. To this demon in this man in Capernaum. Spiritual war has commenced between Jesus and Satan. Spiritual battle after spiritual battle after spiritual battle after spiritual battle. And on and on for the next three years. This war will go on between Jesus and Satan nonstop. Which leads me to what I call the guess what question of the day. The guess what? And what are you supposed to say when someone says, guess what? What? Thank you. So this is what I want to tell you. If you are a follower of Jesus, there is a war between you and Satan that will continue for the rest of your life. Yeah. Aren't you glad you're in church today to hear that? If you are a follower of Jesus, you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you profess to be a Christian... That means, friends, that there is a war between you and our enemy, the devil, and that will continue on for the rest of your life, just like it was for your Savior. There's going to be a war that rages on. And it's kind of like a target on the shooting range. You are the bull'seye of the devil, because simply you're a Christian. You're one of God's children. 1 Peter 5.8, I put it up on the screen. It says this, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Peter likens the devil to a roaring lion. You know what the Bible likens you and me to? Sheep. Bah, <laughs> like, not good. I'd rather come out with a roar, but no, we're sheep. And while this can be unsettling to hear if you stop and you think about it, given that this attack is gonna go on for the rest of your life if you're a follower of Jesus, I wanna remind you of a great promise that Jesus has given us to believers. And it's in John 16, I put this up on the screen. In this world, you will have trouble. But, big capital B-U-T, take heart. I, Jesus says, have overcome the world. I've overcome it all. I was victorious. We know troubles, don't we? And we know temptations, do we not? I mean, we do, we do, we do. But Jesus says, take heart, be encouraged, don't give in. Through Christ, you can overcome whatever Satan throws at you. Jesus, our Messiah, has overcome at the cross and at the resurrection, he was victorious. Jesus defeated Satan and demons once and for all. This is that moment in the service where you say, amen, because it's true. We have hope, friends. In fact, Luke shows us some more examples of how Jesus has overcome the world. Look back in Luke chapter 4. Let's pick it up in verse 38. It says, then Jesus got up and left the synagogue and entered Simon's home. Remember, Simon was one of those people I mentioned that he went out to call people disciples, Simon. Better known for us as Peter, that's why I shared this with you, because now we get a picture of how this is going to roll. He enters Simon's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him to help her. And standing over her, he rebuked the fever, and it left her. And she immediately got up and waited on them. And while the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And laying his hands on each one of them, he was healing them. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, you are the son of God. But rebuking them, Jesus would not allow them to speak because they knew him to be the Christ. Some unforgettable moments, at least maybe not at church, but now it's in someone's house. And outside that evening when the sun had set and the synagogue or the Sabbath day was over. So get the picture here. It, it, I don't know what your plans normally are after church on a Sunday, but most people go and eat. Amen? All right, so we're with, you're, you're with me, all right? So they go and eat. So here's Jesus going to Peter's house, Simon Peter's house, presumably to have a meal. And when they get there, it's probably maybe on the way. Imagine the conversation, and it's like, well, you know, my mother-in-law, she's at her house. She's widowed, you know, because we don't have social services. She's We take care of her. But she's sick. She's running a fever. She's been running, who knows how long. And Jesus comes in there and it shows us that he has dominion and power to overcome even a fever. And we know how intense those can be if you've had kids and and you kind of freak out over those from time to time. Because Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. Trouble like what? Well, trouble like a fever. Trouble like what they said here was people that had sickness. Trouble that people are even possessed by demons? You're going to have that in this world. You're going to have all kinds of problems and troubles and things that are not good. But Jesus says, Take heart. I've what? I've overcome it all. Whether it's the trouble of sickness or demonic activity, Jesus has overcome the world. The crowd acknowledges this. They acknowledge Christ's authority. And Luke puts that in here for us. Jesus authenticated, he proved of his authority through these miracles that we see here in these verses. You know, I'm thinking if social media was going on at this point and all this happened with Jesus, except for the people in Nazareth, I think a lot of people in Capernaum are like, I want to be a request of Jesus' friend on Facebook, right? I mean, it's growing now. And if he was on Twitter, I'm thinking all the people are like, dude, did you see what he's tweeting? Look at what's going on. He's number one. This is what's trending. It's happening. It's taking off right now. All in the midst of Satan's attack against Jesus, we see the work of God coming through and changing people's lives And so for the remainder of our time this morning, I want to return to this big picture, the spiritual war between Jesus and Satan. As I said earlier, write this down if you haven't. If you're a follower of Jesus, there is a war between you and Satan that will continue on for the rest of your life. It's going to be that way. I just want to say this too. That's the bad news. But it's not the only news. I have good news for you. And in knowing the truth about Jesus of this series, I have that. Here it is. I just want to put this out here for you. You, as a believer, are destined to be victorious in every spiritual battle you encounter. Now, don't raise your hands, but do you really believe that? That you are destined to be victorious in every spiritual battle you encounter? I just want us to stop and realize this, friends. So much of our Christian life, including mine, thinks, well, I can't win that battle. That's too great of a battle. That's too great of a temptation. That sickness is too much. There's no way that this will be overcome by God. I wanna to submit to you is as far as the spiritual battles that go on, you're destined to be victorious. I wanna share you with you this morning, the remainder of our time, three facts of why that's true. And then I wanna share with you three steps you can take to help you be victorious in your life. And so as you encounter spiritual warfare, remember, remember these facts. The first one is this. Jesus has authority and dominion over Satan and his demons. If we look back and look forward, Verse 35, Jesus says, Be quiet and come out of him. And we see that continues on with the verse that that's exactly what happens. Imagine if he didn't. What would the narrative be then? Then I would say, Well, this fact couldn't be factual, but it is. In Ezekiel 28, we're we're told that Satan was God's most beautiful creation. And, and, that, and that Satan is not somebody who we see depicted oftentimes as a red-faced man with horns and a pitchfork, but that he was a beautiful creation of the of our Father. Yet because of this beauty that he noticed, apparently there were mirrors for him to look in, he became consumed with pride and rebellion, and as a result, he was cast out of heaven. He goes on to tell us that there were some angels at that point who were of the same Position and they had pride and rebellion. They were cast out too. And this happened before the creation of the world because we see that Satan shows up on page three of our Bible. Interestingly, James 2.19 says that demons believe who Jesus says he is and they shudder because they realize it's with authority. Why? Because they know that Jesus Christ has authority and dominion over them. It's a fact. It's truth. Another proof of this fact is that Jesus tells them to be quiet. We saw that in verse 35, but look down again in verse 41. Demons, it's plural. There's multiple people coming here with this, and they recognize who Jesus is, but what does he say? He rebukes them, and they would not allow them to speak. Why does he do that? Let me just offer some 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 reasons, perhaps. One, to show his authority over them, just the kind of the first fact. Second, Jesus wanted his listeners, those that are in his hearing, that right there in that church or wherever, to believe that he was a, the Messiah based on Jesus' words and actions, not on account of some demon. Imagine, like, well, how come you believe? Because some demon said so. That's just not going to compute, right? He's a liar. And the third reason is Jesus ministered on his own timetable, not Satan's. It wasn't the setting. It wasn't the place. So like the church in Nazareth, Satan wanted people to follow Jesus for what they could get out of him. Rather than that, hey, you're a sinner in need of a savior. But Jesus has come to rescue. In other words, Jesus didn't come so demons could acknowledge him as the Messiah, but so people could. Like you and like me. The second fact I want you to know as you encounter spiritual warfare, remember this. Satan and his demons are bound by space and time. They are bound by space and time. If we look back at verse 36, it says that um, an amazement came upon them all. They began talking with one another saying, what is this message for with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. What they're referring to is that place and that time. Right there when that happened. And it would happen time and time again in different places. In other words, Satan and his demons are bound by space and time. In God's conversation with Satan in Job 1.7, we see this again, that they're bound by Satan, by, by space and time. Because Satan responds when God asks where you've been, Satan says, coming to and fro across the earth. As opposed to if you were to ask God, God, where have you been? He says, I've been everywhere at the same time. In other words, Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be in one more, he can't be in multiple places, he can only be in one place. Same thing with the demon. He can only be in one place at one time. So they're bound by their location. You ever heard somebody say the, the phrase, well, the devil made me do it. Okay, maybe we've even used that one, Right? Is that possible? Yeah. But is it probable that Satan was right there in that particular location and of all the universe right next to you when you were stealing candy from the candy store? And you say, the devil made me do it? I'm not buying that one. Sorry, kids. It's not going to work. It's not going to work because they're bound by space and time. And, and if you look at it in James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15... James clearly shows us you are responsible for your own sin. You can't blame it on the devil. Think if you could, what that would mean. You could be excused for everything that you did wrong. Well, it's his fault. You know, James says, no, it's your own fault. You have to take responsibility. So there's another fact. Here's the third and final fact about spiritual warfare. I want you to know this one, number three. Satan and demons cannot control your mind or your decisions. They cannot control your mind as a believer or your decisions, your choices as a believer. Can they tempt you? Yes. Might they try to control your thoughts and your decisions? Yes. But can they do that ultimately, control you as a believer? No. I don't have time to get into the theological reasons on that of Christ being in you. But, but I could give you that if we have more time. Just take it for this for right now. In 1 John 5, 18 to 20, it says this. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who is born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him meaning that he cannot touch and control his mind, meaning he cannot touch and control his decisions. We know that we are from God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, and we know that the Son of God has come and what? Given us this understanding so we can know the truth. We could be free, as John 8, 32 says. Again, I bring back to you this point. I'll put it up on the screen. There's another slide. You are destined to be victorious in every spiritual battle you encounter. I've given you the facts. Why? These are factual truths. This is, if you will, the textbook knowledge of truth here. But then I started thinking, well, how can we actually be victorious? I get the truth. I get the facts. I hold to that. I cling to that. Well, Luke sets this up for us with the conclusion of chapter four. Look at verses 42 to 44. When, the day, when day came, Jesus left. So this is basically the next day. This is on Sunday. Jesus left and went to a secluded place. And the crowds were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. But he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities, for I was sent for this purpose. And so he kept on preaching the synagogues of Judea. How can you be victorious in spiritual warfare? This gives us kind of a picture of how you can do this. Let me give you some three steps that you can take. As you battle through spiritual warfare, take these three steps. Number one, resist the devil and draw near to God. Resist the devil and draw near to God. Luke tells us in verse 42, before Jesus left Capernaum to preach the kingdom of God, Jesus went to a secluded place. Jesus went off to draw near to his father. The question that falls often with this when we see this, is like, what was he doing there? I just gave you the answer, to draw near to his father. If you go through in Matthew's account of Jesus' life, at Mark, and John's, Over and over and over and over again, we see Jesus going off to pray, Jesus going off to a secluded place, Jesus going away for a little while. Why? To meet with his father, to resist the temptations that would come his way because there's a battle going on and Satan only has until the cross to get the victory against him just once, just to mess up once. And Jesus takes, before he goes off to do ministry, he takes off and says, I'm going to go away to be with my father. I need that fellowship with him. I need that time with him. I'm thinking, if Jesus does that, shouldn't we, as his children, do the same? To think that we could go into spiritual warfare or a battle of the day and think, I don't need to spend time with my father. I'm thinking, Jesus did. Jesus did and you don't have as much battles going on. Man, you should at least take and spend some time with them to to resist the devil and do that. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. I really want to drill into the, the importance of this, friends, to understand the passion that needs to be held here. A number of years ago, Uh, we were getting ready to leave my house and Kendall, my daughter, was four at the time and I asked permission to share this story and she said, you can, but just tell them I was four and that I'm 10 now. I'm like, okay, just so you know. So here we are getting in the car and we have this little pink elephant and her name was Ellie, Ellie the elephant. And as I was strapping her in, Ellie fell down and miraculously fell down and hit the floor and fell out of the car. We're still in the garage, mind you. The car's not even running. We're not impossibly, I mean, we're not leaving yet. And at that very moment, Kendall just jerks, says, Ellie, Ellie, like that. And I'm thinking, whoa, my goodness. Here you go. It's like, oh, Ellie, oh, Ellie. And he holds there, holds Ellie so close. And I've never forgotten that. And I thought, what if I was as desperate as my child was for a stuffed animal? As I was to draw near to God. That God, I want you. I will not go on with my day without you. That's the kind of passion. That's the intensity I think we've got to understand. When I put up here, here's a step. Oh, resist the devil and draw near to God. No, I'm talking passionately. That is everything to you, that you cannot go on with life without your Ellie, if you will. That's what I'm looking at here. That's what I'm understanding. That's what I want to convey. As you battle through spiritual war, here's another step know your weaknesses and be alert to their temptations. In verse 43, Jesus gives us a response to the crowd. He says, I must go and preach the kingdom of God to other cities also for I was sent for this purpose. The key words here in this verse for me are preach and purpose. Preach and purpose. That's what he came to do. He did so also in the context of this spiritual warfare that is going on. In the face of temptation. And as you live for Jesus, you'll do the same. In the context of temptation, of the context of of spiritual warfare but the Bible tells us in first Corinthians 10:13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it first John 4:4 4, 4 puts it this way little children that's us you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. But you still must know your weaknesses and be alert to their temptations. You need to have barriers put in place. You need to know, where am I weak and have barriers set up to prevent, if you will, the law of gravity of sin taking place. Years ago, I was up at the Space Needle in Seattle because my brother lives up there, still does, and I just, it just struck me. We went up high to this Space Needle, and I remember, I know you're gonna find this unbelievable, but did you know they have a guardrail outside when you walk out? Can you believe that? I thought, why, what do we have this here for? And then that wasn't enough. Some guy got the idea that said, you know what, we need to put cables going down so you can't climb up Out over the railing. I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. And did you know that they put in another barrier for the person that somehow missed the other two? There's a net about 10 feet below there that if you jump out as far as you can, the net will catch you. After that, the law of gravity takes effect (laughs) completely. I wonder how many times in our walks with Jesus, we know our weaknesses, we know their temptations, but we start at the net to think that we can overcome that. Friends, you've got to have a lot more barriers. Maybe you need to stay away from Seattle, so to speak, so you're not even close to giving in to what Satan would love to do to bring you down. Last step I would suggest we take as you battle through spiritual warfare is to put on the full armor of God. Put on the full armor of God. In verse 44, Luke tells us that Jesus kept on preaching because verse 43 tells us that was his purpose. Look, if you're serious about being victorious in every spiritual battle you encounter, you must keep putting on the armor of God, the full armor of God, because its purpose is to protect you in every spiritual battle you encounter. That's what God's given us. Ephesians 6, 10, 13 tells us the pieces of armor, the belt, the breastplate, the feet, the shield, the helmet, the sword. And we're going to unpack that this week in our life groups. I just want you to think of it this way with the armor of God. Many of us have been driving down or up and down the freeway, and you know those Caltrans signs that come out there and they'll say how many minutes it is to the airport or whatever? Have you ever seen the one that says click it or what? Ticket. Ticket. Now, thankfully, I have my seatbelt on, but for some reason people think, oh, I can drive without one, even though the law says you're not supposed to. In the same way, I wonder how many times we go out to face spiritual battle and think, I don't need any of those weapons or devices of protection. I'm good to go. And God is saying, no, buckle up, buddy. You're in for a battle. You need to be prepared by resisting the devil, drawing near to God to know your weaknesses and the temptations that go with them and having the full armor of God put on you. Let me give you a final reminder as I close. And it's this. In the end, Satan and his demons lose and we win. Did you know that? In Revelation 20 puts it this way, verse 10 And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In other words, they're gone forever, never to come after us again. We win. And like an unforgettable day in church, I hope that a promise like this will be and remain unforgettable in your life. Lord, we stop and we thank you for the hope we have in you. And Lord, I pray for each of us that are going through whatever battles we're going through that, God, we would follow these steps that we've looked at, that, God, we would do what you've called us to do, and that we would not wander away without being prepared. God, thank you for this hope that we have in you. Thank you that we know in the end we win because you overcame the world. Thank you, God, in Jesus' name, amen.